So let's have a look at the context of uh, the book of Romans. Um, Paul was about um, 18 years into his 32 years of ministry when he, write, when he wrote the book of Romans. Uh, he uh, was on his third missionary trip at the time, it was around 56 AD, they think. Um, and uh, uh, he was actually um, staying in Corinth, uh, in Greece, at the time when he wrote this letter to the Roman church. And uh, just out of interest, if you, uh, just before he wrote the book of Romans, he wrote the book of Galatians. And if you look at the book of Galatians, there's only six chapters, and have a look at how similar to the book of Romans it is, because often it makes sense that if you wrote two things together, your, your thought patterns would be quite similar. And you can see a lot of similarity between the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. So that's just an interesting side note. But why was Paul writing to the Romans? Um, the church in Rome uh, wasn't started by one of the great apostles, um, you know, in a church planting exercise. Uh, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers gathered together, there were people from all over, and they think that some of those people were from Rome, and that those people returned to Rome, blessed by the Holy Spirit, and met regularly, and that's where the church in Rome came from. So it's, it's come up through the Holy Spirit's guidance. It hasn't been a, a, an intentional church plant by one of the, um, the leaders of the early church. And as we know, Rome was the centre of the, the great empire that ruled the world at that time. And so it's a little bit important to make sure that the witness of the Christians in Rome wasn't uh, full of legalisms and idolatry and you know, getting the gospel wrong because whatever witness they gave in that city, that's what the people who ran the empire would think of Christians. So it's quite quite important in that sense, if you're one of the leaders of the early church, Paul, Barnabas, or Peter, or whoever, that you include Rome on your itinerary and make sure you get there at some stage to share the gospel and make sure they understand the grace of God and the truth of the gospel in its, in its fullness and mercy. So that, I think that's where Paul is coming from when he has this desire to visit Rome and he wants to write this letter because he hasn't got there yet. He's 18 years into his Christian life and ministry and he still hasn't got to Rome yet. So he writes this letter and he wants to make sure that they've got the gospel and that they understand the key points of the gospel. So he opens really strong in this first chapter and he's, he's talking about what the key, key points of the gospel to understand are because that's really what he wants to communicate with them and ensure that they understand. So it's helpful to have that context in understanding why this letter was written and what Paul was trying to achieve with it. In, in due course, Paul does visit the Rome twice. Um, in a few years after he wrote this letter, he visits there and then goes off to do other things and comes back again finally where he's executed in Rome um, about 10 years after this letter or 12 years. So, so in that, with that understanding of where Paul's coming from, let's have a look at the words that we heard uh, Greg read. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit, is preaching the gospel of his son, is, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come and, uh, come and visit you. 
So that all lines up with what we know. Um, I long to see you that, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So um, just remember that whoever stands out here, Montaz or whoever you have preaching on a given day, is just a um, flesh and blood human like you. Um, they're uh, only saved by faith. There's no superhumans among us other than Jesus. And we all encourage each other in our faith. And that's, um, that's, that's the way God has set it up. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Now, there may have been some um, Jewish Christians in the church in Rome, but obviously there would be some Gentile Christians as well, and, and predominantly they're witnessing to the Gentiles around them in, in that city. For I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And this is a famous verse in verse 16. Uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So what does it mean, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last? We know that Jesus died on the cross for us, for our sins, and he rose from death. We know that he wants us to, to follow his ways and to be good. But we know that we're not saved by being good. We're not saved by works. We're saved by our faith in Jesus' actions. Our faith in, well, it's the Holy Trinity, isn't it? As we, we heard, the, so we're saved by God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. All of what they're doing is producing our salvation, and, and that has been done. You know, before you've done your first good work, Jesus has already saved you by his actions uh, because you believe in him. So... The next little bit that's interesting there is that it says, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk, chapter 2. I've always read over that quickly and thought, oh, well, that's talking about the believers, you know, us. But I'm just wondering, I don't think it is just talking about the believers. The righteous will live by faith. Who Who is the most righteous? Well, Jesus, you know, he, he came down amongst us and lived as a human, and he lived righteously. So I don't know if you're um, familiar with those uh, team-building exercises that they sometimes have in a workplace, where you stand like this, and you fall backwards, and the person behind you has to catch you and stop you from hitting the ground, and you know, it's teaching you to trust each other. Well, that's what Jesus was doing when he cried out on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. Jesus was trusting that God the Father would raise him up after three days, back to life. And that's not just a theory. That's that's not just a head knowledge of, oh yeah, you know, I trust God. That's really putting your trust in God, isn't it? 
So Jesus was living by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And this has been modelled for us by Christ himself. So, you know, I'm flawed in my faith. You know, the, you know I do things wrong, I slip up, and I don't always, I'm not always kind to my wife, as, as kind as I want to be. And I think, oh, you know, you're selfish side or whatever. But Jesus was the perfect example of the righteous. So he, is, he set that example not just... Um, uh, you know, at, a, at some higher level that doesn't relate to us. He came down here on earth and he lived every day just like you and I. He ate, he slept, he felt stressed, he went off and prayed to God to recover. And all those times he crossed the Sea of Galilee to the other side for a rest because he was stressed. You know, and he, he goes off into the desert to pray with God the Father. So he knew the same stresses as we did, but he did it righteously and perfectly. So it's, it helps us to see that God's not asking us to do something that is too hard. He's not asking us to do something that he doesn't understand because he's done it. He's done what he's asking us to do. And despite our imperfections, he's also paid the price for our imperfections so that we're in the team and he's, he's saved us, he's caught us. Um, so that's, it's helpful context to see... Um, when you look at that passage, that it's not just something he's asking you to do. And but moving on into verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And I guess sometimes we may uh, be in mourning about loved ones who don't believe and you know and how can we help them understand you know we pray for them which which we should and we we love them and and hopefully through that there's a witness to our loved ones or our friends or whoever it is that we're thinking of in this context god god is at work too and god makes it plain to them so it's it's don't feel that this is some impossible burden for you just to go out there and and starting from a blank sheet of paper, explain the gospel to the people around you. Because God is at work here. You know, as it says in the Old Testament, if there was no one else, God would make the stones cry out. So God makes it plain. He's, uh, his spirit is here. His word is at work. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly uh, seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a, a, a nice reminder for us that um, in our day-to-day -day stress, uh, we can sometimes forget um, the, the big picture, lose context. You know, it's all about the bad day I had at work or the, the nasty thing someone did to me. But here, um, uh, God points out that those who fall by the wayside aren't glorifying God and they're not giving thanks to him. And we do have things to give thanks to. And there's a lot of the glory of God around us. Um, in each of us here, there's the glory of God. You know, um, 
no matter how brilliant you were at school, you couldn't make another human being, could you? I mean, you might procreate, you might be a parent, but you couldn't start from scratch like God did. His, he, his glory is all around us. And, um, and it's, uh, it's good for us to remember that context and to give thanks to him and, and never to lose, lose sight of that um, and what a difference it does make when we do remember to give thanks. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. So it's idolatry, um, uh, made to look like human beings, birds, animals and reptiles. So uh, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And so God gives them up to that and gives them up to their foolishness. And we have many examples around that, around ourselves in our own lives, but we can also see it in ourselves. You know, when you start to chase an idol, um, whatever your passion or interests are, and, and you get caught up in it and then it starts to get too big and that's all you think about and in your heart that's what you chase and want. And... Um, God can give you up to it and in the end, hopefully you'll see the deadness of it. You know, let's say it was a Ferrari or a, a bigger house or something like that. You know, how dead that is if that's the only thing you treasure or the or thing that becomes overly large in your, in your head. So um, really this whole passage here is Paul trying to say, keep it in context, guys. Don't lose context. You know, car is good, a house is good, but keep it in context. And remember to give thanks to God. From there, if we have a look at um, Matthew chapter 6 uh, now, um, it's part of, it's part of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and in that as you, as you be aware, Jesus changes from a little topic to a topic, so I've only included a short verse there because it's just picking up the snippet that's relevant to us. Um, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, very much relates to that passage in Romans we were just reading, and it's it's so um, it's quite a well-known passage. I'm sure you've heard it or read it uh, numerous times. Um, and I guess despite that, we still find ourselves traipsing off down, um, being distracted from time to time, because it's it's almost as if uh, when we're trying to be good, it's like a, a high jump bar that's up here. And we think, oh, you know, I'm not sure I can get over it. Um, and we might from time to time, but every now and again, we're, we're bound to fail. I guess the point here, here is that by dying on the cross, Jesus has got over the bar. You know, you're not going into heaven because of your own perfection. You're not in a relationship with God because of your own perfection. You, it's Christ's perfection, which is 
uh, pave the way for our relationship and re uh, reuniting in relationship with God. So when Christ says this in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not trying to set a nasty high bar for us. Um, it's perfectly true advice, and he knows that we'll fail from time to time. But that's, that's not what matters. Um, and if we're going to understand what God is intending through these passages, I think it's important to understand the context of where he's coming from. If you think about when Christ, uh, if you look at how Christ applied the law, think about uh, when he, he saves the woman from being stoned for adultery. It's not because he approves of adultery, um, but he can see the, the sin in the hearts of the men, some of whom may have actually been involved in that adultery, busy trying to remove evidence of their sin by having her killed. Um, so Jesus intervenes in that situation, stops them from stoning her. But he doesn't say, keep on with it. He, he tells her you know, what she needs to do. And he sends the, the fellows away. He applies the law in love, with love. And if we look at other examples like healing lepers on the Sabbath, and then you know, there's the self-righteous, jealous church leaders going, ha-ha, he healed someone on the Sabbath, what a naughty fellow. You know, um, Jesus isn't applying the law legalistically, he's applying it in love. And that's the context which we need to see these passages in. We need to see that he loves us, that he's done the hard yards for us because he wants us in his family. We'll just keep on reading the rest of that passage. Um, well, the, the next part is just relevant. Well, actually, no, I won't. I'll, I'll jump to the next bit. Um, if you, uh, you'd be familiar with the story of the prodigal son, where um, the father sees the wayward son returning home and he goes running up the road to greet him. Well, that's just culturally wrong. You know, it doesn't make sense. A wealthy man in that era would never go to see an underling, including a son. He would send his servants to bring the underling to him. That's very much, you know, that's what a king would do, that's what a wealthy man would do. And this man owns a lot of property, he has a, a big farming enterprise. He would not go running up the road to greet a good son, let alone a wayward son. So it's, it's very culturally wrong the way Jesus tells it. But Jesus knew that. And what he's trying to tell his listeners in that culture is that this is the nature of God the Father. Understand the nature of God the Father and you understand his word. Understand the context of what he means when he says this. So we have this incredibly loving Father, God the Father. It's not just Jesus, the loving Son, and the Holy Spirit who's kind and caring. God the Father comes running up the road. Um, that's the context which we get this, um, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Because you can see where God the Father's treasure is by looking at what he does and how he comes running up the road for us. So that's really the... Um, the essence of what I want us to understand from these passages, so that you don't see this as some high jump bar that you can't make, 
But just see that not only does God give us his Bible, his word, to guide us, not only does he give us the Holy Spirit to guide us and pray for us, not only does he give us the fellowship of the saints, each other to encourage us in our faith, but God the Father is running up the road because he loves us. And that's the context with which he sets all of this up. So that one day we too can cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Amen.